Well, good morning, Bethel Church. One of the things I love about the summertime here, well, it's summer, just all by itself, that's all right, right? Uh, But it's so fun to see many of you who are visiting, coming back home, and uh, if you won't spend the cold season with us, at least spending some of the warm time with us. So it's good to see uh, so many um, homecoming folks, if I can call you that. Um, If you would, just bow with me, and uh, we're going to pray before we go to the Word this morning. So let's do that together. Our Father, whenever we sit to hear the instruction of your Word, the temptation is always there for us to hear it for someone else and not for ourselves. I pray you would protect us from that now, that our hearts and minds and that our ears would be open to hear from you for us. Not for others, but for us. So we ask again, speak to us, Lord. Through your word, through your revelation, by your Holy Spirit, and drive these truths deep into our heart for our transformation and good in your glory. For your name we pray, amen. If you'd open to Matthew 18, we're just starting the first half of this chapter uh, this morning. And... uh, Uh, Over the past 15 years here preaching at Bethel, and then the four years of doing youth ministry before that, um, I've had the opportunity to use a lot of different object lessons over the years. And you guys have seen a few of those. Uh, I've used a water filter that we put on our system at home to filter out the hard stuff in the soil from our well on its way to our consumption. Uh, I've used a hornet's nest with kids years ago at an Awana lesson. I brought in this hornet's nest to show them how even uh, the little creatures around us here, even hornets that we maybe don't particularly think that highly of, or wasps rather, that's what it was, it was a wasp's nest, uh, have the ability to create this amazing intricate home. And by comparison, how much better is God doing having had 2,000 years and all of this power to go and prepare a place for us? And so that was my object lesson there. I've used my beloved hatchet uh, to teach a lot of different things, uh, like how to, you know, take the tip of your finger off on accident. Uh, I've used a series of broken winch cables from my four-wheeler plow, uh, one of my more humbling displays to you all. And one time, years ago, uh, actually more than a decade ago, I actually used a coffin uh, as an object lesson. And that one didn't go over so well, to be honest with you. <laughs> Who would have guessed it? Uh, But here in Matthew 18, Jesus brings forward a phenomenal object lesson in order to correct his disciples' thinking and to instruct them and to give them a picture of what he desired from them. And so he calls out of the crowd a living, breathing child to stand in front of them to illustrate humility. Uh, The catalyst for this object lesson uh, is a question that was posed from the disciples. We find it here in Matthew 18:1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if we were only reading Matthew and his account, we might think that this is an innocent question. They're just curious. Maybe the disciples are just harmlessly pondering what heaven will be like someday. And this question emerges. But if we look to Luke and Mark, the other uh, pairing of the synoptic gospels here, 
uh, we're notified there that this question actually emerges from an argument from among them. In fact, a pretty ugly one. And, and, and interestingly, Luke's account, it's in 946, if you want to make a note and check on it later, uh, or if you're a fast turner, you can go there now. Uh, but Luke's account is particularly devastating for the disciples. Because he says this, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And so you see that this isn't just an abstract theological conversation about you know, the hierarchy of heaven or this kind of thing. This is pure pride and arrogance. This is shameful, swagger, spiritual upmanship, and posturing. That's what we see from the disciples here. Now, we might kind of wonder what, what causes this, what gets this going in them. And I think if we were to kind of look at the context and consider where we were last week, the transfiguration having just happened a week prior is very likely uh, a part of the cause where Jesus selects three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and takes them to the top of the mountain. And you can just imagine that them coming down with a little bit of a puffed up you know, chest and a high chin and the way kids do when they get an experience that maybe one of their siblings didn't get, you know. So perhaps this is what has caused them to begin talking about, well, why those three and are they more important and who is more important and who might be more important in the future and it's going to be me and not you. And you can kind of see maybe how this might have developed. I'm just speculating. Um, I kind of think about how frustrating this must have been for Jesus. The eternal son of God who leaves the abode of heaven, who possessing all of divinity sets aside his independent use of it, takes upon himself humanity, enters into his creation with skin on, humbling himself and taking on human flesh, that he might be a servant and die, not for good people, but for rebels. These, these consistent markers of condescension of Almighty God to serve mankind, hoping that his followers, and I have to use air quotes here, will pick up on this. And instead, what he hears them bantering about is, which of us will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? While Jesus is modeling this descent of humility and service. So, while it's an annoying question, from it comes a very beautiful object lesson about the right posture in the kingdom of heaven. In verse 2, it says, He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first thing I want to be very clear about is this. Humility is the posture of the kingdom. Uh, it's really at this very early point in the, the passage where I've heard many different sermons preached on this. I'm sure you have too. And what's interesting is that even at this early point, the sermon will begin to braid out and take on lots of different shapes uh, for whomever is preaching it. Uh, oftentimes, different aspects of childlikeness are uh, kind of extolled, and we're told we ought to emulate those. I've heard sermons that focus on the innocence of a child, right? Nod to me like, yeah, you've heard some of these too. The innocence of a child, or the trusting nature of a child, or the dependence of a child, 
the purity of a child and other kinds of things. But the clear aspect of childlikeness that Christ is referring to here is humility. That's his point. It's not that we ought to just be children or childlike. It's that we are to be humble like children are. And we can see this in two ways. One, Jesus is confronting their prideful posturing and he's arguing for the converse. So the opposite of pride is humility. And second, he's explicit about it. He tells us unless, we're, unless we humble ourselves like a child, we'll never see the kingdom of heaven. So the issue here, I want to be clear, it's not about childlikeness, whatever you think that to be. The issue is about humility in contrast to the prideful posturing of the disciples. And I think one of the reasons that there's a common disconnect here and why we hear so many other things related to this, uh, a big part of it is, I think, because of the difference uh, with how we look at children in our culture compared to how children were viewed in the culture in which Jesus is teaching. Uh, In our culture, just stop and think about this for a little bit, children are beloved, and that's an understatement. They're idolized, pampered, Uh, They are protected, they're photographed, they have groups that advocate for them. Uh, They're celebrated almost to a fault. Most parents live not for themselves, but for their children. And I could go on and on about this, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Children represent the pinnacle of our cultural value. But it was just the opposite in the first century. Children were considered lowly. They were loved. And they were cared for, but they were considered really low-class citizens with no rights. Survivability rates were low. They represented to a family another mouth to feed. They represented vulnerability, which was not appreciated. Until they could contribute to the sort of the family enterprise, they were seen more or less as a burden. And in fact, the scene where the disciples kind of shoo away the children who are coming to Jesus represents the, the prevailing value. The fact that Jesus receives them to himself was the exceptional value. And that's just important to understand because the object lesson for them and what it might say to us are a little bit of of two different things because of the cultural values and cultural differences. And I think that's why there's a, a disconnect here. Jesus is pulling forward from the crowd one who represents lowliness one who in their culture is absent of merit and doesn't come before the Father posturing for position. It's not one who brings a set of accolades or a resume talking about what they deserve. And that's really the thing that Jesus is drawing out. There's another interesting thing here in this early part of the passage where Jesus uses a word that I kind of paused on for a moment for effect, and that's the word change. He says, unless you change... And this is really fascinating to me in my study. Some of you, depending on the translation that you have, um, the NIV and the ESV kind of translate the word here uh, similarly. And they, the ESV calls it turn. Unless you turn, and NIV says, unless you change, the New American Standard has, unless you are converted. The King James has, unless you be converted. So it really elevates the, the kind of the loftiness of this word. What we were meant to see that unless there is a transformation that occurs here and a big one, a holistic transformation. The other interesting thing here, the word, the Greek word is strophete for change. And the ending of it, the, uh, the last part of the word indicates that it's in what we call the passive voice. 
Active voice means I throw the ball, right? Middle voice means I throw the ball to myself. I sort of act upon myself. Passive voice is I receive the action. The ball is thrown to me. So what's interesting here is when we hear this word, we think, unless you change, okay, well, I got to roll up my sleeves and I got to, by golly, I got to change. I got to do this. But what's interesting is that it's in the passive voice, meaning that this is something that's happening to us. In other words, theologically, God is already at work in our lives, bringing about change. He is at work in us through his spirit. He is bringing circumstances into our life. He is cultivating the kind of change and transformation that he wants to see. And the command here for us to do it is to participate with what God is already doing. So we should not hear this and go, okay, change. I just got to flex my muscles and try really, really hard to be humble. Okay, when I say it like that, you can see kind of the silliness of it. God is already doing a work in us to bring about humility and repentance and the kind of transformation he desires. The command to change is respond to that. Yield to it. Accept it. Allow ourselves to be changed by the work of God. And in fact, I think a more precise translation here would be be changed. Be transformed. Um, I think the encouragement that I hope you hear is that God is already facilitating that in you. It's already occurring. You could look at your job and your boss and your coworkers and you could go, yeah, there be instruments of God's changing me and providing humility in my life. (laughs) You could look at your marriage and go, hmm, yes, there is an institution that is bringing about change in humility and sanctification in me. You can look at what you're reading, what you're reflecting on. You could look at your body and your aging and realize, yeah, God, in any number of ways, in any number of facets, from all kinds of directions, is producing humility in me, inviting me to yield to it and to change. Jesus goes on to tell his disciples just what's at stake in this transformation. First of all, this kind of change, this humility, is required for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. Humility is a requisite to enter the kingdom. And you might hear it said that way and think, wow, that's a pretty high bar. That's pretty lofty. And yet, nothing could be more obvious when we stop and think about it. For us to have saving faith in Jesus Christ, we have to acknowledge our need for him. We have to know, we have to be aware that we ourselves are sinners. We have to know that we have offended a holy God. We have to be aware that we have been separated from him. We have to humble ourselves and accept that we cannot make ourselves right to God with God by our own effort. We have to humbly accept that it took someone else's performance on our behalf to be right with God. And we have to humble ourselves and trust in him and his sacrifice as our substitute. So of course, humility is the requisite for the kingdom of heaven. Of course it is. Uh, In fact, have you ever noticed that sometimes the most difficult people to share the gospel with 
are the people who are not, it's not that they're so hard and so bad and so dirty or so evil in life. The hardest people to share the gospel with are nice people, right? You notice that? People, you look at their life and they're pretty good, pretty moral people. They do a lot of nice things, a lot of good things. And you try to share the gospel with them and it's almost like they're inoculated against it because they think they've done all that they need. So we see there very clearly humility is required for the kingdom of heaven. We need to see that we are sinners in need of a savior. Romans 3.20 tells us this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Humility is a requisite for the kingdom. Our family was on vacation uh, recently. We went down to Washington, and there's this cool little fun center uh, in Yakima uh, where our family is. It's called the Meadowbrook Mall, and it's got... um, you know, a little, it's got a little golf course and little uh, water bumper boats, and it's got a little racetrack, too. Well, at the racetrack, like oftentimes rides do, there's a sign out front that says, you must be, you know, this tall to get on this ride, yeah? And not everybody in our party was this tall. And so they had to, in order to get on the ride, they had to go with somebody who was. And so they were riders, and others of us were drivers. Boy, it's the same thing is true of the kingdom of God. You know, the sign says, you must be this righteousness, this righteous to get on this ride. And we can't even see the top of that, that stretch. And the only way we're getting in through those doors is that we ride along with Jesus. Because he is the only one that meets that standard. Humility is a requisite to get into the kingdom. But it's also for those, it's the prevailing posture for those who are in the kingdom. As I said last week, no one who walks with God is prideful. No one who walks with God is prideful. Pursuing humility, I think, is a very difficult thing. I don't know if you've ever had a period of your time where you thought, okay, that's it. This is going to be the year. This is going to be the year of humility for Eric. I'm going to go after this. I'm going to pursue this and I'm going to accomplish this thing. I don't know if you've ever had a season where you thought, this is it. This is my pursuit. The difficult thing about humility is that it evaporates as soon as you think you've grasped it. Right? Like a cloud or a mirage. As soon as, as, soon as it's within reach and you close your fist, it's gone. Because having held it is to destroy it. Right? That is the nature of humility. Uh, I heard a man speak a couple years ago. His name was Dick Kies, and he, uh, it was a fascinating talk on humility. He said it's a secondary virtue. I thought, what do you mean by that? His point was that you can't actually achieve humility by pursuing it directly, but it's a byproduct of other virtues. He says the supreme virtue we must pursue is love. And when we pursue love, humility is a byproduct. I thought he was right on the money with that. In fact, C.S. Lewis comments about this a little bit too in, in his book, Mere Christianity. And then Tim Keller has grabbed onto this and identified some uh, of the brilliance of it. And I want to read a section to you uh, by Tim Keller, quoting Lewis, 
but Keller's um, work here is called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. This is what he says. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only comes, uh, that only self-forgetfulness brings. I like that. That that resonates with my own experiences. Uh, Thinking of myself too high or too low is still self-preoccupation. Humility is being concerned with others. Humility is found when we pursue love, when we lift our eyes heavenward and we see the glory of God and see who he is, when we love him and when we love those he loves, that's where humility is found as a byproduct. In other words, if we aim at humility, we will land at pride. If we aim at love, we will find Humility by accident. The second point we see here is this, that humility is exercised. In other words, it's not just a subjective thing. Humility is not just something, it's not just the way that I view myself, but it's how I carry myself specifically in relationship to other people. In fact, I would say this. How I treat other people is perhaps the greatest indicator of either pride or or humility. How I treat other people is the greatest indicator of pride or humility. And so Jesus here gives us some specific examples of how humility is exercised, particularly in relationship to others. Look at verse 5. He says, And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. And so what I think we learn here is this, that humility is exercised by what Jesus calls receiving others, or receiving these little ones as he calls them. And I think that begs the question, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to receive somebody? Does it just mean we open the door to them you know, of our house when they show up? What does it mean to receive them? I think it means that we see their intrinsic worth. We know they're valuable to God. We grant that. Humility isn't ranking ourselves above them, above others. Uh, even while we might exercise different roles or different ranks in our life, in our job, or 
and volunteerism or whatever, they are but roles. They do not change our intrinsic value or worth or anybody else's. The point we are meant to see here is that all people matter to God. C.S. Lewis again, and you know, I would much rather quote Tozer than Lewis, but I, Lewis has got it this time. In the weight of glory, he says it may be better than anybody else. Talking about the value of people. Remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping... Excuse me, I skipped something. No, I didn't. All day, see, that's what happens when you read Lewis. You're never sure if you've got it right. <laughs> all day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked with a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Lewis taps into our imagination like almost nobody else can, and he helps us to see this person's eternal outlook and where they are headed, either a creature that is angelic, something like we might worship, or something that is suffering like a demon in hell. These are the two trajectories of anyone's life. That's who we're interacting with. Not just your neighbor who's annoying or whatever or a coworker who bothers you or a family member who knows how to get under your skin but eternal creatures who are loved and valued by God. So when we receive and we welcome others, especially those that the world views as lowly, we are showing that we have a proper view of God and a proper view of others and a proper view of ourselves. Humility, again, is achieved as a byproduct of loving others. So it's exercised in receiving others and in extending grace to the vulnerable. And this is a hard point for me here, if I'm honest with you. I think there are so many sneaky layers um, to our pride, or can I just say there are so many sneaky layers to my pride? (laughs) Really sneaky. You think you've uh, put some of it to death. You think you've dealt with some of it only to find it creep up on you again. I was remembering a story about this as I was thinking about how we extend grace to others. When I was in college, uh, I think it was my junior year, I met uh, a young man named Carlos. He was a friend of a friend and was being introduced to me. And Carlos was, um, well, I'll just say he was unimpressive in his stature. Okay? He was a skinny kid with glasses, introverted, had a sheepish look on his face, didn't want to look you in the eye. Um, and so I was greeting him and And I think I said something to the effect of, Carlos, don't worry about fitting in here. We'll get you all set. You know, you got to wiggle and swagger a little bit when you say that. We'll get you all established around here. We got you covered. And the reality was I was welcoming him with this sense of smug superiority as though I was established at the school, as though I had a posture and sort of was the gatekeeper for his acceptance. I'll tell you, my intentions were honestly good. 
to try to greet him, receive him, welcome him, but not from the posture from which I did it. Um, Little did I know about Carlos, he is actually a brilliant young man. Uh, Very personable, capable, devastatingly funny. One of the funniest people I ever met. Uh, He teaches creative writing at USC today. He's a professor. And I was going to help him get established. (laughs) And uh, uh, shortly after getting to know him better, uh, he told me something uh, that I did not like hearing. He said, Eric, when I first met you, you made me feel like a project. And that I remember verbatim. It's been over 20 years. And he was right. Um, even while trying to do a good and nice thing and receive him and welcome him, I had projected on him lowliness. He wasn't lowly. That was my projection upon him. It's what I imposed upon him. And my outward show of humility was really a charade of pride. What I needed to do was love him. I needed to ask him questions. I needed to be interested in him. I needed to get to know Carlos. I needed to know what he needed and what he didn't need. I needed to know Carlos. I needed to know his story. I needed to know his hopes for school. I needed to think about him, not what I had to offer him. That was the grace that he deserved from me, which I didn't extend at that time. I think this is what Jesus is getting at. Humility is expressed. It's expressed in receiving others and receiving the lowly, not as we see them, but in greeting them and getting to know them as they are. Verse 7, or verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Uh, What we learn here is this. Humility is severe with known sources of sin. Uh, So if I could ask you the question, this is one of those points in the scripture, especially Jesus' teaching, where we think, does Jesus mean this? You know, are we supposed to take him Literally here, and I know by looking at all of you what your vote is, because you're all looking back at me with two eyeballs and a pair of hands, the answer is no, we're not to take this literally. This is, in fact, what we call hyperbole or overstatement for emphasis or for effect. But Jesus' point, which is clear, which is to be taken literally, is we are to be severe with sin. Severe with sin. And that is, in fact, the humble thing to do. Because it's pride that says, I can domesticate this thing. I can indulge in this private sin. I'm only harming myself, if at all. I can keep it tame. This little indulgence of mine, this eccentricity, this little pet of sin that I keep tucked away and out of sight, I've got it managed. My sin, after all, is just a baby dragon. And the problem with baby dragons is, of course, that they grow up to become full-fledged, fire-breathing, flesh-eating, community-destroying dragons. And that is the nature of sin. They are destructive in their nature. And John Owen has said it pithier and maybe more memorable than anybody else when he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
It is pride that coddles sin. But humility is violent with indwelling sin. Mortifying it, as the scriptures say. Killing it, putting it to death. Some big words the scriptures uses, right? Not try over time, little by little, carefully, you know, to get rid of it. Kill it, the scriptures tell us. What's at stake here is that we would otherwise harm ourselves and others. And I think the prevailing lie of the evil one is this. Sin's no big deal. It's no big deal. Disobedience, personal indulgence against God's warnings, his prohibitions, sin doesn't really matter. In fact, God may actually be withholding something good or better from you. These are the lies that the accuser whispers into our ear, and they are the same lies that he whispered into the ear of Eve in the garden, right? But did God really say that? That's not really true. You won't surely die. Or you will become like God. So the issue here is that really God is withholding something from you. He can't be trusted. These are the lies that the enemy spins in our ear and has forever. And so we need to know this, that sin is a shortcut. Sin is always the shortcut. Sin is a lie. Sin always harms. And maybe surprisingly, and I don't have time to unpack this this morning, sin is always communal. Always. Uh, We think there are such things as private sins. And the reality is no, because we are communal. Because we are connected to others. And when we sin and harm even just ourselves, we harm what was intended to be there for others. Sin is always, always communal. The humble man does not think himself above sin's devastating effects. And I think this is what we are meant to see here. Finally, humility affirms God's value in each one, in each one. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. I just got to pause there for just a second to acknowledge, you know, if you've heard all your life about guardian angels and you thought it to be sort of this childlike theology that parents kind of give you, I say, here you go. Uh, We have guardian angels. The scripture affirm it. Some of your guardian angels ought to get hazard pay. I'll say that as well. Some of them are probably looking a little rough. You know, the halo tilted slightly, a little roughed up. Uh, But we are meant to see here our value to the Lord, that he even assigns to us one for our care and our safekeeping. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, he will not leave the 99 on the hills and go back to look for that one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Here we get to see the heart of God. That's what we're meant to see. You know, in in the other Gospels, you know, um, Daniel Schubert did a phenomenal job unpacking this passage and the others uh, that go with it in the Gospel of Luke and the way that Luke uses them for his audience. And Matthew uses this same stock teaching of Jesus, but he kind of has a little, little different point or a more focused point here. He wants us to see, in no uncertain terms, the heart of God. 
You can just write that over the top of this passage. Do you know the heart of God for the lost, for those who would wander, for those who are struggling, for those who would be in harm's way? This is his heart. He leaves the 99 and he goes for the one. This challenges me because that's not good math. It's not, I think, but the 99 need to be cared for. That's my shepherd's heart, honestly. But God goes after the one. and the, We're meant to be unsettled by this. We're meant to, to think, that doesn't quite add up. We're meant to be shocked by the loving heart of God which pursues each one, anyone, especially the one who wanders off. God's doing some work in my own heart with this right now, so forgive me if I'm a little emotional about it. And I hope one of the things that you see here in this passage is the repetition of this phrase, little one or child, seven times in 14 verses. This comes up, and we are not meant to see just the child. The child is the metaphor, the illustration for anyone who would seem lowly or needy or vulnerable or disregarded. Jesus wants us to have a heart for those people. And so Jesus doesn't mean just children. The child is symbolic of anyone in the culture who may be disregarded. Their argument, which began by debating which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, um, has led Jesus to teach us about his heart. What we are meant to see here is that doing well in the kingdom of God means having God's heart for others. That is, it does not look down upon For these little ones, he says, have angels who have an audience with God. And again, not just children who have guardian angels, but these little ones, anyone has one, an angel who has an audience with God. And then finally, humility will not look away. And I'm going to develop this a little bit more next week, but humility has God's heart. It's willing to go to the lost. It's willing to go for the one who's str- go to the one who's struggling. It's willing to go to the one whose life is not in order. It's willing to go to the one who is in a precarious way. When pride wants to say they should have known better and done better, humility says, "God loves them. They matter, and I'll go to them." And so the point I want you to take away is this: prideful posturing has no place in the kingdom of God. The follower of Christ will be changed because God is working this change of humility and transformation into us. We're to respond to it. We're to receive it as the Holy Spirit works upon us so that it will pursue in us humility, humility like that of a child. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard to stand and talk about humility. I feel like I ought to be sitting on the floor. And I pray, God, that your words would not be inhibited by my voice or myself in any way. And I pray, and I pray with confidence because of what you tell us here, that you would do a work in us to produce humility. We are confident that you are doing that. May we be 
influenced and transformed. May we yield to what you're doing, that we might enter the kingdom of heaven and that may we may reflect your heart in being there. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who modeled this for us. Amen.